Welcome to the very first podcast of Impressions of America. Um, this is a, a new podcast. I'm Simon, and my co-host is Toby. Hello, Toby. Hi. So, yeah, as I said at the top of the show, this is a, a new podcast. It's about American history, modern American history, and it's presented by two Brits. For our debut episode, we will be discussing and reviewing The Post, Steven Spielberg's 2017 historical drama that focuses on the Washington Post's 1971 decision to publish the Pentagon Papers. Meryl Streep plays Catherine Graham, the owner of the paper and the central figure of the film. Alongside Streep is Tom Hanks, playing Ben Bradley, the executive editor of the Washington Post, who fought vehemently for the right to publish. In the backdrop to all of this, we have the Washington Post going public, and the fear that publishing something as controversial as the Pentagon Papers could derail the public offering and threaten the long-term future of the paper. The first extracts of the Pentagon Papers were published by the New York Times on June 13, 1971, in a story written by Neil Sheehan, thanks to the work of Dan Ellsberg. Ellsberg had previously worked in the Pentagon under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, and it was Robert McNamara who commissioned the survey for historical purposes, after growing skeptical that increasing the number of American soldiers in Vietnam was having any real impact. I think it's interesting that we called it the Impressions of America. Though. Like, how did you get, where did that inspiration come from? Well, I mean, as you know, Toby, I am nothing if not a pseudo-intellectual. <laughs> I, 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 like, I like to sort of strive towards excellence without ever actually achieving it. So okay. I, I, as part of that, I was trying to think of some sort of impressive name that we could come up with, something that was kind of catchy, but kind of fitted with this idea that we were, we had these in, impressions of, you know, different aspects of America, whether it be political, historical, mm-hmm. social. And uh, I was trying to Google around trying to find something. And I honestly don't remember how I stumbled across it, but I found out that uh, Oscar Wilde had written a book about going to America and he'd written some uh, notes and uh, yeah I thought Impressions of America that's a interesting name for something which is I suppose quite fitting for us considering we both kind of grew up as two Brits looking across the pond and I, 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 I suppose on some level we both have quite strong connections to America one way or another. Yeah it's interesting that Wilde actually went to America and toured America and there are his impressions but Although we we have like academic and sort of like entertainment interests in America, I I feel like the internet has made it so that actually sort of I don't know experiencing having an impression of America is a lot easier. I mean I can do it from you know my bed in six do it from Glasgow apparently. Yeah, I mean I it I suppose for both of us growing up sort of pre-internet age to some degree i mean i grew up kind of in the 90s and a lot of what i was picking up in that side was from television and um i'm guessing you were the same for to some extent you know watching you know american Mm. tv shows and that kind of stuff and then obviously as we've become supposedly grown up we've we're getting the internet we're getting it through twitter we're getting it through wherever and we're getting impressions is probably one way of putting it you know we are getting this picture of america whether it be political or what have you and uh i suppose it's quite fitting quite fitting name that we are having these impressions of america without maybe necessarily mm-hmm. experiencing it firsthand yeah yeah i i really feel like 
it can be experienced. I mean, we're sort of sort of like wrapped up in a sort of tumult of cultural and uh, sort of social um, influences, especially on Twitter and Tumblr and Reddit and all of these things. It's it's sort of like I don't know. I think you can gauge an, an impression of America because it's it's just so important in sort of the the cultural life of the Western world, really. Absolutely. I mean, before we move on to our, our subject, I mean, we'll just probably focus just a couple more minutes on this just to give an idea of why we're kind of doing it. I remember when I was a kid, I remember watching, I think it was the 2004 election when uh, Bush got reelected. And mm-hmm. there was a question on BBC News about should the rest of the world have a vote in the American election because they were such an important figure and they kind of, you know, held the position as, as world leaders. And I thought, Mm-hmm. At the time, I remember thinking, no, because, you know, that that is precisely not what we should be doing. You know, it should be American people. It should be, you know, they are the one making the decisions, just as, you know, Americans shouldn't be voting in UK elections. I have to say, mm. after the last election, I'm now thinking maybe other parts of the world should vote for American elections and not let the Americans decide. If but... you think um, other parts of the world should vote in American elections, you know, I don't think that the UK is the first port of call after the <laughs> Brexit thing. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a very wise decision. And in fact, I think we should try and remove democracy from the table altogether when it comes from Britain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, am, I am for what, what they call it, economocracy. Sort of the ideas of uh, economists and intellectuals, you know, just running things and leaving the sort of big decisions in liberal democracy to... You know, people who understand things better. Once America got off the, <laughs> once America got off the gold standard, for instance, everything's become a lot more equal. So maybe we should just leave it to the economists to decide everything. Mm, I think that's for a later episode. So our first podcast is about the post. It is a film which. Yep. It's an interesting film because it, it looks at something which, we are both very interested in, which is the Richard Nixon presidency and that time in history in general um the film mm-hmm. the film is about the pentagon papers but it's it's about the pentagon papers through the eyes of Catherine Graham who is played by Mel Streep and yeah. it's it is a feminist film it was written as a feminist film and it is interesting that throughout the film you do get this impression in fact you get it explicitly told to you that here is a woman who was not put into this position kind of out of choice. She was there because her husband had died and she was the <laughs> one left to take over the company. And throughout the film, especially in the start of it, you see her struggling to find her voice and struggling to come with terms with some of the, decision, <clears throat> some of the decisions that she has to make. Um, <laughs> before we kind of get any further on into the film, what are your thoughts just in general about this being a big political film which is you know talking about that you know the, the the great the great power of journalism and it was told through Catherine graham and it was told through the post and it wasn't told through the new york times so much and it wasn't talked about to the same degree as as being this story about the the person who really broke the story the one who leaked the papers you know it, it mm. was much more about here's this decision that these people have to make are they going to follow up 
and keep on publishing these Pentagon Papers after the New York Times mm-hmm. has seemingly been uh, shut down for it, at least in the courts. Yeah, I, I, I do think that um, Catherine Graham is actually a, a sort of a better, in terms of uh, as a character, she's a better character to um, explore the story from than sort of Sheehan or uh, Ben Bradley and possibly even Ellsberg because I think what's particularly good about this film is that there are a lot of scenes in this film that are incredibly social. She sits in sort of dinner parties. She's um, she's tucking children to sleep. You know, there's a, there's a and there's a sense in which that she performs a sort of emotional labor for this social class, which is a mix between politicians and uh, big people in the media and big business. You can see that what's necessarily happening here is that um, Kathleen Graham has to make a decision about whether to actually go against the sort of the, the establishment culture that she's grown up in. She doesn't just have, have to make a decision that you know, that she, um, uh, it's not just a First Amendment decision that she's making. She's making a decision to actually defy um, the powers that be. And, that, and I, I think that's what makes this film, I think, a little bit better than just a deification of journalism. And I think it, it forms a critique of, um, it performs a critique of Washington journalists um and simply being oh look at uh look at all of these journalists and how they defied richard nixon oh nixon's disgusting that's uh clearly analogous to trump um so what what do you think i think it was it was an interesting choice i think whenever you make a film you always make a decision about how you're going to frame the story and i think yeah. Framing that story through a device such as it being Catherine Graham's big choice, and they do keep amping up in the film it being her story. There's a moment mm-hmm. where Ben Bradley's wife is discussing with Ben Bradley, who's the um, executive editor of the Washington Post, mm-hmm. play, played by Tom Hanks, and those two are discussing about this big thing that's happening, and they're going to press, and isn't it a big deal? Mm-hmm. And Ben Bradley kind of talks about him being kind of an equal partner in this and this idea that he has as much to risk and as much to lose as which Mel, is as frankly preposterous character. yeah yeah and, yeah and his ben bradley's wife goes no she, she has a lot more to lose both mm-hmm. both from the point of view that she could be the one going to jail and also from the point of view you know this this paper's been in her family for so long and if anything actually ben bradley is going to be kind of congratulated about this kind of regardless of how it goes because he is fighting for this right to publish and you know he's going to achieve that and then you know his standing is going to be pretty good kind of come what may to a certain degree whereas she's the one kind of putting her neck on the line and especially as a woman in that position which you know i mean we 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 know that there was sexism back then and we you know we are aware of it but i think we perhaps underestimate just how foreign it was still even not that many years ago for this idea for a woman mm-hmm. to be running a newspaper, you know, 
Um, yeah, and uh, I think like Spielberg does that well through the illustration of space. You can see like there's a scene in which there is uh, a bunch of secretaries outside, and then there's a room in which she walks past all of the secretaries, and then she walks into a room that is completely full full of men, and she's very conspicuous in that environment. And there's a note there's the also, also another scene in, in the boardroom that uh, much early on in the film where she sort of she's also very conspicuous. She's supposed to be the most important, most powerful person there, but she's almost acting like a secretary to her to one of her employees, Fritz. She's giving him information about uh, the financial record. She seems very nervous. She's being talked over. She's being maligned, you know. And I think one, I mean, the great thing about this, one of the great things about this film is Meryl Streep's performance. She, she really portrays someone who is sort of sheepish and um, sort of calculating, but not, not too much of a big personality. Just coming into her, which, I mean, from a character and an acting standpoint is, is fantastic. Yeah, I think she does a very good job of being someone who is dominated by the men around her. Someone who you exactly. can, you know, you can see, you know, visually throughout the film. You know, she is struggling to find her voice, and in fact, there there is one scene where she's in a boardroom full of men, and the the camera is on her, and she's, you know, the exact words she's wanting to say because she's already run through them in practice, and she's got them written down in a notepad, <laughs> and she, you can see. She's trying to repeat these lines in her head before she can get them out, and she doesn't quite have the courage. And just as she's about to speak, the man next to her, who is on her side, says those words for her, and kind of, you know, you can feel that sense of the man having to step up to the plate, as it were, because he feels Catherine Graham isn't able to do that. And you know, you could see that as this kind of you know chauvinistic thing, but you could also see it as simply as a a realistic opportunity or realistic um, reality. Because mm-hmm. if he didn't do that, you know they're trying to fight this argument at the time. He didn't know whether or not Catherine Graham would ever stand up for herself. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. we find out later on she does find her voice, and it's a great thing when she does, and she makes clear decisions. But even when she starts making those decisions, she, you know, she's struggling to find her voice and struggling to get her breath at times as well. She's, you know, you can feel the mm-hmm. air trying to circulate <laughs> amongst her lungs as she tries to speak. It's not, it's not just suddenly she's standing on tables and dictating to everyone. It is a, a gradual process, even as she starts to deliver. It, yeah, it, it is a process, and 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 um, I mean, I think in some sort of quite isolated takes of um, Meryl Streep's face. You can see her actually sort of thinking through this decision that she has to make, and you can see it just... I mean, you can see it conveyed through just simple um, facial tics almost. But I think another important point is that she isn't just a uh, sort of a woman. You know, like, there, there's another scene where... They, they are having a dinner party. And obviously they're making a joke about Nixon because they all hate Nixon. But then once they start talking about politics, all the men stay and all the women leave. 
and Catherine goes into the, I don't know, the sort of the sitting room, and the women sort of opine about, oh, you've got this day job now, but the politics is being discussed by the men, but then McNamara comes to see her, so she, you, you could see that she's sort of a little bit porous in, in, in her position as both the leader of a newspaper and as a woman at the same time. Absolutely. I think I think that's a really good point you touch on there. That scene where as you say, she is, you know, she is a woman. She sort of naturally falls back. I believe just before that scene happens, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's the kind of the classic the women kind of look to each other with a smile and say, Oh, it's it's time to leave kind of thing, you know, that's our yeah, that, that's our, that's leave, our yeah. cue to go. You know? Yeah, for like for me, watching that in like two thousand and I don't know, what, 2008, yeah, it's quite jarring. But you just have to think that that's actually how this shit should happen back then. You know? Absolutely. I don't, I don't think... I don't think you can underestimate the, this idea that women did have to know their place. And, you know, we are still talking about the mm. 70s, so it's not that long ago, but it, there mm. is definitely that separation where you have... You know, women can be at the dinner table, but once the politics starts and once the economics start, it's suddenly it's going powder your nose kind of thing. It's mm. it, and that's where the serious talk does happen. But as you say, Bob McNamara then comes to her, and they discuss that there's going to be a story run tomorrow about him mm. and about his his role in these things, and that's where we start to see a disintegration, or it's the start of the disintegration between Bob McNamara and Catherine Graham where they are close friends she is um, she considers him his you know her closest ally and yet later <laughs> on in the film we discover her annoyance and her deep upset that Bob McNamara was part of this cover-up and part of this plan to continually send young boys young men into this horrific war that they knew they couldn't win and they knew they couldn't really make any progress in Bob mm. McNamara, you can see him trying to fight to establish that you know he was trying to do his best, and Catherine Graham does does acknowledge that, and you know she she says something along the lines of, "I I know you were genuinely trying to do your best, but you still continually put men in harm's way of all these bullets," and you know she can, I think you can see there the hurt that. And maybe the lo- the loss of innocence to a certain degree. I mean, this is a woman who'd, yeah, who'd yeah. been around politics her whole life and had been around these men, but mm. whether or not... And she found um, Kennedy and McNamara, you know, they, they call that administration Camelot, you know? This sort of King Arthur and his round table. It's sort of a, sort of a romanticized reality those people live in. And I think this runs quite well into the point about the media and uh, politicians, because there are scenes in this movie where Ben Bradley and uh, Graham discuss their relationships with big people, uh, big politicians. You know, it's um, first there's a scene where, yeah, um, I think it's uh, he he tells uh, Catherine that, oh, you used to. Um, buddy up with uh, LBJ and Labour and 
um, there was there wasn't a sense in which this was an adversarial relationship between the executive and the press. This was a, a social relationship that these people had. And and Ben Bradley says, well, there was this time when I was with Jackie, and she said, whatever I say in this meeting, you're never going to you're never going to write about it. And he says, well, that broke my heart because he never saw them as uh, his sources he saw his, his, his pals and and that sort of that sort of congealing of a social group that 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 subverts the actual uh, role of the media in sort of bringing about um sort of enlightening the public about politicians this this can't happen when they were all in the social group but obviously richard nixon being nixon you know, he he sort of uncouples that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I think that that kind of moves us nicely on towards the media side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about that scene, I think it was um, Jackie Kennedy. I, I think that was just after JFK had just been shot, and I th- I think was it Bob Bob Bradley was so uh, Ben Bradley sorry was trying to comfort her and uh, yeah trying to deal with that, and you could you could see through Tom Hanks performance about this portrayal of this idea where at the time, as you said, you know, the only thing going through his mind was how to comfort a friend. It wasn't, how do I lead this story forward and how do I get this story out? And I think, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea that the film plays with, at least touches on is this idea between the Washington press and the, the, the Washington, uh, the Washington elect you know uh, yeah because i mean this this film isn't so much about journalists doing journalism i think one of the weaknesses of this movie is the uh, i think it's odenkirk's um character i really like bob odenkirk uh, a lot and then you see and he he plays uh the, he performs really well because he seems like a man who uh just he's just reacting to events and he's but anytime you know, he tries to investigate something. There aren't so many doors to actually finding what he's looking for. He makes one call. He goes to Ellsberg's uh, motel. You know, it, it seems like it's frustrating, but it's frustrating for like five minutes. And he finds Ellsberg and, and that's it. And that's, that's probably one of the weaknesses of this film. And, and if you wanted to compare it to a movie like All the President's Men, which is just complete paranoia and so many closed doors. I mean, all the president's man is like being in like uh, long grass, and you don't know what's coming, you know, at the next turning. This movie makes finding the information quite easy, and makes the idea of um, truth say so truth can truth can be identified and truth is knowable in a way that sort of the films in the seventies made truth sort of um truth is sort of hard to find and in, in, and and is hard to identify i think that's probably one of the weaknesses of, the, of this film but that's not but that's not what the film is trying to do yeah I, I think it's interesting that bob mcnamara when he commissioned this study he talked about this idea of it being this historical document that people could look back on and to a degree mm. that's almost what this film is it's more of a historical document yes we, we yeah we do see it through the eyes of Catherine graham and it is much her story but it's a historical document in the way that i never felt maybe this is simply because 
I, I knew the outcome of it, but I never felt as if there was a great sense of danger that they weren't going to get, they weren't going to publish or that they weren't going to proceed with how the timeline plays out. Now, obviously, to some extent, <laughs> that is what I'm bringing to the table, and maybe I could have been more invested in it if I didn't know, but I also think perhaps because maybe maybe we don't have the stakes as you say of following a journalist trying to break a story we see people in a room trying to make a decision and i suppose to some degree you always have that hollywood thing of are they really gonna you know what story would this be if they didn't publish it or what story would this be if the court did actually side with Nixon, you know, it would be a very different mm-hmm. story. So there's obviously that yeah, yeah. certain element of it. You know, it's it's the comic book yeah. hero thing. You can always kill, yeah, I mean, kill off a minor character, but it's very unlikely with 20 minutes left that the bad guy's going to get away with it, you know? Mm-mm-mm. I mean, yeah, the, the journalism, as in doing the journalism, is an aside to making the decision. Absolutely. And you compare that with something which um you know looks at journalism from the journalist point of view something like spotlight which was much more about this investigation from the ground level and it was mm-hmm. you know very much centered on, on this idea that here are people trying to uncover something which they what there were suspicions that something had been going on all along you know and maybe it was something of an unspoken reality that this idea that there were you know predators amongst the catholic church and it, it was, as you quite rightly said, in a lovely phrase, this idea of the long grass and trying to, you know, wade through that, whereas this is almost more of a portrait. This is a bit more statement-like, you know, it's a bit more, mm-hmm. it's standing back a little bit, but it is a good yeah. film. I, I think it has, it has strengths. I think purely from a filmmaking point of view, I think one thing which you can, I think, Spielberg was very in love with and I think which shows throughout the film is the sort of tactile physical nature of the film he really likes being able yeah. to press buttons and you know you see the presses you know the paper being yeah, slotted yeah. through and you you can it, it takes you back to this idea of physically handing out news you know Mm-mm. printing things getting oil on yourself getting ink on yourself yeah getting it in advance it, it, it sending is, it out it is really romanticized in that way i think even um not just the machines but the sort of if you it, there's a scene where the boy's running into the new york times building and the, the times building is this sort of art deco building and the, and the guy's wearing like a trench coat and it's, it's, it's almost like a I don't know. It's 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 a really romantic, rose-tinted scene. That's quite classic Spielberg, though, isn't it? I mean, Spielberg, yeah. Spielberg does like to romanticize certain things. I mean, not not always, and he has, you know, it's not like he hasn't touched on hard subjects before. But even then, it, oh no, you know, he, he 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 made uh, Munich, didn't he? <laughs> he made Munich, and of course, he made Schindler, yeah. he made the Schindler's List. Although, he made Schindler's List, yeah. Although that has been criticised, you know, to a certain degree for its. Oh yeah, that has been criticised. You know. uh, I think Schindler's List was criticised because um, the idea of presenting the Holocaust to many Holocaust scholars is seen as almost perverse and. Yeah, and but, there's yeah, also, there's but, also an idea that. You know this idea of you know if if only I had you know saved nine more or ten more or whatever it was he was tr- trying to say you know I could just I could just save more people sort yeah. of thing and you know there has been 
criticism to a certain degree about you know what it is they showed but i mean i think going back to this film i do think you get this idea that it is a bit romanticized but i suppose to a certain degree it, it at a time where journalism and news is being attacked i suppose it's not the worst thing in this in the world to present this positive light of people standing up to authority and publishing things and getting the news out there you know it's mm-hmm. is, is it necessarily a bad thing to romanticize that you know i think in these times maybe not you know i think that's mm-hmm. that's I don't and, I, and i think it does go beyond the idea that because i mean the thing about it is that nixon is sort of an archetypal villain in american history sort of i mean you're protecting the right to publish the right to freedom of speech as a scene and there's a scene in this film where Walter Cronkite's on the television and he says, oh, they've just, um, they've just given out a prior injunction against the, the New York Times. And, and people turn to themselves in shock horror and they're like, this hasn't happened since the beginning of the Republic. You know, Nixon is the sort of, Nixon is the archetypal villain um, trying to bring down the whole Republic, you know. But the film goes beyond that by... by by showing that journalists can be sort of aides to politicians. Pre-Nixon, there was the idea, that, like, like we've talked talk before, you know, the idea of social engagements with the Kennedys, the idea of boat rides with, with ladybirds. And I think the Washington Post itself, you know, under the Obama administration, under the Nixon, and under the Bush administration, they were definitely, you know, supporters of the Iraq war. They definitely maybe didn't criticize Obama enough because of the, the, their own political values. And to show that, so Nixon, and I think what a great scene that underlines this is that in, in the dinner party, they're all, they, these, this is the establishment, the Eastern establishment, and you know the, the politicians, uh, businessmen, journalists, and they're, they're all making fun of Nixon. They, they, like Nixon, they don't like Nixon because Nixon is socially awkward and Nixon has ideas that are different from them. But if it was Kennedy or if it was Johnson or if it was Carter, you know, they'd, they'd be much more comfortable and they, they, they probably would be less adversarial, you know? Absolutely. And I think this kind of gets us on to, as you say, the villain of the piece, which is Nixon. It's interesting throughout mm. throughout the film we will cut to sort of a silhouette background of uh, of Nixon, his back to the camera in in the White House, you know, maybe speaking on a phone. And we get this idea of Nixon passing on these instructions to uh, whether it be Alderman or whoever it may be. Alderman, Ehrlichman, all those guys. All those guys. <laughs> Colson. Remember in the scene, in the, in the film, there's this scene where she picks up the phone and it's, Hol- and it's Holderman and she's like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm wary. It's Holderman. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Holderman, Holderman was not exactly the uh, the warmest and cuddliest of creatures. He was, you know, Nixon two point He was, yeah. Hold, Holderman was a was a ratchet man. He was absolutely, and, and you know, he was the one who he had great power w- within the Nixon administration. You know, he he made a lot of decisions. He made he made micro decisions, including how people would walk and talk and speak to camera. He would, you know, he had a lot of influence up until his res- resignation, <laughs> at which point Nixon, you know, threw him to one side and got on with the rest of his day. Um, mm. there, there's a there's a line where Tom Hanks's 
character does does utter utter the phrase Nixon is a son of a bitch and that's kind of how the film sees him you know it is very much Nixon is this paranoid and repulsive character who will come after you he is you know he he has no morals essentially is how, is how yeah, the film yeah there's, there's another scene uh, towards the end when she's making the decision she's mulling over whether or not to publish because oh that the injunction might be taken from the New York Times and they, the Washington Post might be added on the injunction. She's like, well, I mean, maybe I shouldn't publish, but this isn't really extraordinary for, for a newspaper. And it's definitely not extraordinary for a newspaper working during the Nixon administration, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I, I do think that when when we look at this film, we do have to put in context about what Nixon was. He wasn't just this cartoon mm. villain. He genuinely was a, a bad president and a bad person, at least to a certain extent. I mean, this is someone who would, you know, bug phones. He would get the FBI to bug phones, you know. Yeah. Really yeah paranoid. You know, he had an enemies list. He had an enemies list, and many of the reporters were on the enemies list. You know? I mean, I think at the beginning of the Nixon administration, he started handing out subpoenas to various um, sort of producers of television shows and uh, newspaper reporters, and they, they had never experienced this before. So, I mean, their, their feelings are, were definitely sort of, um, yeah, they, they, their feelings were definitely natural. Absolutely. And in, in research for this podcast, I was reading a very interesting book called Richard Nixon, Watergate and the Press, which I, I, I highly recommend if you can, can get a hold of it. And in, in that book, they describe some tactics which are very familiar if you're paying, to paying attention to politics today, including uh, Nixon uh, basically putting to one side any personal failings he might have and instead blaming the liberal press for everything. I've not heard that recently. <laughs> he also would uh, negate going to any press conferences so he didn't have to deal with journalists one-on-one or trying to get yeah. news out that way. And I think Nixon, it was almost like 36 press conferences he went to, which is less than his predecessors and less than his successors, you know. I think Nixon's relationship to the media, he just wanted to bypass them completely. He had no respect for them. They were the Eastern establishment and of the types, Jews, yeah, you know, all the, all these uh, terrible, terrible types. Absolutely. <laughs> and and <laughs> one one thing one thing he did do was that he would he would hold uh, these announcements on television using this new form of media to basically mm-hmm. announce you know who's in his cabinet or a- any other stories which he wants to get out there so that he could bypass the the columnists and people who could peddle their own views on these issues and he could speak directly to audiences and obviously you know you look at that today with trump and how he you know is able to use social media and how he's able to directly use twitter to announce things which you know i mean we think of it as this crazy new thing but really it's just taking on what you know nixon did and you know it's it's this Mm -hmm. idea that don't trust the liberal press because they will screw you what you need to do is you need to get your message out directly to your people and mm. that's how you do it and you know Nixon did that so you can understand from from that viewpoint throughout the film where this idea that journalists don't trust them because there is there is basically no relationship between Nixon and the press 
or if there is one. Yeah, there's, very... there's that scene in, in there's that scene in the film where he he describes the the times as his literal enemy, and then he's like, "She, no, that that guy is he's a bastard. <laughs> he's a bastard. He's a bastard. <laughs> well, she ain't a bastard." They they talk about how uh the washington post aren't aren't able to uh cover nixon's daughter's wedding and you know that kind of mm, stuff and that, how... that's a, yeah that's very interesting yeah, yeah absolutely so i uh, i don't think you can underestimate just just how how terrible the relationship was between nixon and the press at the time and i think if anything i think there's a you know there would be a very interesting film to be said about the relationship in general between Nixon and the press, maybe even pre pre election, pre uh, winning in sixty eight, it would be mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to delve into that a bit deeper. But of course, as soon as you do that, you then have to try and pick and choose in two hours what exactly it is you tell. And I I, I do think something like the Post, where it's been able to tell this as a side story, I think that works quite well because you're able to pick up on these things without necessarily having to hang on every detail and I, I, I do like that about the film that you are able to you're able to understand the atmosphere in which people are working not necessarily by what nixon is saying but by what's happening around this story mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely so i mean that kind of leads us nicely to the end of the film which is basically the sort of political equivalent of, of a marvel film where they have the they have the post credit scene and then you know in the in your next adventure you will see thor and he will arrive on earth <laughs> it's 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 kind of silly it's kind of silly <laughs> and then the end of the film we have the very famous scene of the police officer going into the watergate hotel investigating what had happened about the break-in at the democratic uh, convention and of course we had uh, nixon's men there uh looking for information, trying to steal secrets, uh, trying to get whatever it is that Nick, Richard Nixon thought he wanted. But, um, <laughs> so... <laughs> he won that election. I think he won that election by more than 60%. So, like, that was a completely, like, needless... Like, just Nixon's paranoia drove him <laughs> to... Completely overshoot his mark. Absolutely, you were you were completely right. The seventy-two election, he won. I think he won pretty much every state. I mean, it was something like four. yeah, he won more. I uh, yeah, I think there's a, there was one eastern state. He yes, lost. I think I think I think you're right. Yeah, I think it might have been uh, eastern seaboard somewhere where he didn't win. But I mean, this is a man who, if he was, if he had anything close to a normal personality, he would have just been able to see out the last four years of his presidency. And okay, he would have had some controversies <laughs> against his name, but he wouldn't have had that he wouldn't have been disgraced he wouldn't have left the presidency in a way which i mean it still rings through into popular culture today just this this idea of nixon leaving as as a result of the watergate scandal it is it's almost incomprehensible just how paranoid this man was but to a certain extent there were secrets he didn't want to get out there and there were certain things which if he felt if they'd got out there would have not just undermined him as a, a president but i suppose maybe him as a kind of a political figure or a social figure maybe going forward after that as well yeah i mean in the film um there are the scenes of nixon and kissinger deciding collaboratively that this is not information that we want out and then so they they move to the to use the di- judicial um sort of strategy through prior uh the idea of prior injunction stopping 
the press from actually printing. I think there is one point that I'd like to make. I, I think that Nixon and Kissinger felt that in terms of their foreign policy diplomacy, that having the information released might hurt them at the table with um, to w- when they're negotiating with Hanoi. I mean, the idea that 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 the Pentagon Papers actually could harm national security um, is 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 a difficult argument to make because essentially a lot of the information in the Pentagon Papers was already known by Hanoi, and anything that was really sensitive was held back by Ellsberg. I mean, the Pentagon Papers were a sort of a clear indication that the the American government had lied to the American people, and it and, and of course a fifth institution, a, a sort of a, a press that sort of adheres to its constitutional um, underpinnings, would want to release that information. But it is true that Nixon not only ha- had a national security um, uh, problem with it; he had some personal issues with the idea of people sort of releasing documents pertaining to uh, the Vietnam War. Absolutely. And there are are two particular documents which I don't believe were part of the Pentagon Papers, although I could be mistaken on the second one, which was part of the reason for the Watergate scandal. Um, We had had the secret bombing of Cambodia, which Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think my recollection that those were included in the pentagon papers although they subsequently did get out and that was you know damaging but as far as i'm aware kind of the one of the key things which nixon was very paranoid about getting out into uh into the uh open uh, open world was the let me try and pronounce this the chenot affair which was um to do with nixon essentially being nixon during the 68 uh, Nixon Republican being Nixon. Nixon. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and to do with the uh, the election in 68 where Nixon Nixon basically undermined the peace process between LBJ and uh, Vietnam and yeah, at, yeah. At, at a time where North Vietnam was, you know, they were hesitant but seemingly starting to be a bit more open to the this idea of a, of a peace process. Nixon was basically doing everything he could to um, to dampen that and to um, stop a, a peace being signed between you know the North because and it South. would help him in the election against Herbert uh, Humphrey, of course. Yes, because in '68, because '68, President Johnson was of course not running, but Humphrey yeah, was, and he was the nominee, and it was seen that if they could get this peace treaty peace treaty signed that would have uh, a big impact on the election. You know, interestingly enough, Johnson, obviously Johnson found out what Nixon was doing and he leaked the information to the Humphrey um, camp and they decided to do nothing with it. There is a chance that Nixon might have gone to prison because of it, but if it got out anyway, I mean, the chance of him winning that election would have been nil because he, he, he won that election, I think 68 was the second closest election in the modern era after 60, which was also a Nixon election. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, he definitely wouldn't have won in 68. Yeah, it's it's amazing, uh, actually, yeah. just from reading about this stuff, that it would appear that 68, Nixon, to begin with, ha- had quite a strong lead in the polls. And then as things got closer to the time of election, his 
think yeah. I think his lead might have been as much as 15 points and then it was cut down to a point where I think in one poll Nixon was actually behind by a couple of points so it, yeah, you, you can understand although we obviously don't fully agree with Nixon on certain things we can understand his paranoia that if those things were if that peace treaty was signed was that the end of Nixon because like you say this was a Nixon who was who had lost the 60 election very very closely I mean it was it was it was one of those things where history would have been so different if just you know a few thousand people i believe would have gone a different way yeah so, yeah you know it, it's i think was... that the conspiracy theorists always um is the idea that it um kennedy's father had paid off um members of the mafia to do a lot of uh sort of uh picketing and electioneering for him with the unions in chicago and that might have tipped the scale for um I mean that that's a period in which the Democrats were a little bit dirtier than the than Nixon Republicans. So. And Nixon never he never got over that. I, I and I think when we're to take this back to the post, I think knowing that I think even if he didn't know the full extent, I think you can get a clear indication from the film just how paranoid Nixon was. And I think that although it's only kind of intercut kind of sporad sporadically through the film you actually hear him speaking or an actor playing using it uh, doing his voice speaking you do get a, a clear understanding of how paranoid and up upset he is about certain things and how much he wants to control how the media uh, covers him so i think as you say at the, at the end of the film it's it's <laughs> it is pretty clear how nixon got to that state and where where Nixon was going to be going kind of beyond that and you know Watergate wasn't some sort of aberration for him this was Nixon mm -hmm. you know yeah and it, it's interesting if you and Nixon as paranoid the idea that actually the Pentagon Papers generally were about previous administration but in his sort of mania he clamped down on it you know he overshot in terms of clamping down on um, this particular event because he was afraid of other things. Uh, yeah, so you have the Pentagon Papers, which were, you know, they were damaging to Nixon, but they didn't completely blow him out of the water. You know, he was still elected and elected very well in 72, that whole year after the Pentagon Papers came out. They were probably more damaging to the legacy of LBJ and JFK. And... Yeah. If Nixon wasn't so paranoid, maybe he could have taken a step back and seen that. But instead, it it just re-emphasized re this idea that the press were out to get him, that he had made mistakes, and if they found out, he would be blown out of the water and his career would be over. And so you you do get this idea in the film that this hasn't finished Nixon, or the Pentagon Papers haven't fin finished Nixon off, but they're, they've exposed a raw nerve, and that's what we see at the end of the film, where he sends in his uh, good it, it did expose a sort of a malevolence and i think spielberg captured that by sort of having um nixon as a silhouetted you know within the white house while sort of ominous noise sort of overlaid uh, um, the scenes that he was in and, and i think that the idea of um the idea of watergate coming in on the backs of the Pentagon Papers, I mean, maybe isn't obviously in in uh, sort of his historical terms 
necessarily true, but it it is spiritually consistent with the idea of Nixon as this sort of paranoid megalomaniac. Absolutely. And I think what the film does by doing this silhouette of Nixon alone in the White House is it paints this idea of his paranoia, of, of him being singled out, of him being alone, of this uh, siege, ment- siege mentality where he is sort of yeah. stuck in the White House by himself while the, the world is attacking him. You know, it maybe it was maybe there was never ever going to be any other choice to this but spielberg could have gone down the route of perhaps showing a bit more of the sort of the offices of the west wing of the white house and how he how nixon sort of or at least nixon staff dealt with things but we never got to meet any of that it was very much here's the figures we're dealing with here's Catherine graham you know here's here's these important people within the press who are you know fighting against Nixon. yeah at- and it, yeah, and it, it just, I mean, in terms of, I mean, at the central point of this film is, is the decision that she's making. But it, and the, the court cases that sort of portray the, the, the arguments between the government and the, the, the Post and the Times, they're, they're just done in quick cuts. And, and, the, and the idea that this is even a discussion um, of whether to print or not is you know is completely i mean maybe it maybe it isn't a discussion but it is completely sort of overlooked in the sense and if you did have scenes within the white house discussing the ideas of the importance of national security and the the reasons for the um the classification that uh, the, the pentagon papers had been under prior to their release i mean Maybe we could have explored um, sort of arguments between national security and um, and public knowledge, perhaps. So, finally, before we wrap this up, how do you think this film sits within? How do you think this film sits within film history, both with regards to films about journalism and around sort of the Nixon Watergate time period? Um, I feel like this film is perhaps too much of a a deification of the sort of journalistic class in the sense that the 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 audience mem the audience knows the audience is completely on the side of uh ben bradley and the audience sort of tussles with the 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 sort of the social difficulties that um Catherine Catherine Graham's character is going through in in many scenes but um I think by sort of you know the scenes with the machines and the scene then this the they're using Tom Hanks as a sort of like um archetypal uh sort of American uh hero you know he's he's very much like I don't know if you've seen the the Jimmy Stewart um film where he goes to um, Washington. I think Mr. Rogers goes to Washington. It's just, it's like it's, a, it's like a Frank Capper movie, you know. I mean, it's a it's in many ways it's a propaganda movie about how effective journalists could be um, and how the, the institution is important. And I think it does criticize them in the sense that you know by building Catherine Games' character as a as a social mover and as a uh, 
almost a dinner party coordinator for all of these social groups. It can it does show that that um, business and politics and the media can be in, in an ancestral relationship which stops them from critiquing each other. But I feel like by the last 15 minutes of the film, the film is already wrapped up, you know. There's a, there's a scene where Catherine Game is going into the court and she and um, flanking her are two groups of women and they look very happy and it's sort of like this is a feminist hero in the you know in the second wave, and then the the court case scenes are very sort of quick and um, what's that um, Matt Damon's um, ugly doppelganger he doesn't get a lot of screen time to sort of give out his arguments. So you're referring to Jesse Plunge, yeah. yeah but... He plays he plays Roger Clark, who I believe is sort yeah. of chief legal counsel for the Washington Post. And, uh, yeah, he sort of turns up sort of unexpectedly about two-thirds of the way through the film yep. to offer some legal advice. And also to sort of build on this mm. climax of, oh, my goodness, please don't tell me this information is coming from the same source that got the time shut down over it. You know, please, please tell me this isn't from the same source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob uh, Odenick, uh, Odenkirk, sorry, his character basically kind of has to give in in the end and say, yeah, it is that's where you see the big tussle the final the final tussle where will what side of the argument will they fall fall on will yeah they, and and Kirk does do a good job because he's he's an actor that always seems very vulnerable to me he he, he does look like a sort of like a yeah odin odin kirk does do a very good job at being very nervous there's that in, um interaction between him and ellsberg where ellsberg says oh wouldn't you go to prison for your country and, and he goes well yeah uh, theoretically you know <laughs> but and and obviously Jesse Plemons does put him under tremendous pressure but I never but I feel like the the movie happens and it turns on the idea of Catherine Games decision which is obviously a good decision and there there would I mean and and to be honest, there hadn't been a prior injunction brought against uh, members of the press in the history of the United States, like they said uh, in the scene with Walter Cronkite. So, I mean, the stakes, and I know through, uh, you know, cinematic techniques, Spielberg did try to create the sense of tension, but I don't think the film possessed that sense of tension that a film like All the President's Men which is just paranoia and you know, you know, just, just long grass, like I've said, um, managed to do much better. I think the tension comes in the decision, not the outcome. Yeah, the yes, it, yeah. it basically it's what side will she fall on? And Meryl Streep gives a very good performance of Kay Graham, trying to tussle with this idea of if she doesn't do this she's you know betraying this idea of the free press and if she does do it well is she going to put the long-term future uh of the paper at risk so i I, you can the film is very much centered on this idea of people making decisions about do they give into pressure or do do they kind of go with this journalistic ideal but as you say once that decision has been made and things have gone to press the film fairly quickly kind of wraps up um you know what happens this idea that oh they went to court and things got sorted and then everyone was happy exactly. you know exactly. it, it was very much a 
what's the decision going to be from Meryl Streep, not what's got this decision going to be kind of from the courts. It yeah. is actually yeah. amazing how quickly that is wrapped up. And I was mm-hmm. the first time I watched the film, I was a little surprised how quickly they skimmed over that. I understand why the film isn't about the court decision. The film is about Catherine Graham making this decision and about her finding her voice. So I understand completely why Spielberg and the writers went with that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you are, when you're, when you introduce a character like Roger Clark, who is kind of presenting this idea of the dangers of what will happen if they do make this this decision, when they then make that decision, it perhaps feels a little light in content as far as what comes next. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, and I, I and to make the point again, I think the film is escapes the sort of um, propaganda of a Frank Capra movie by having. Catherine Graham as the uh, main character because it's it's much more it's much more social and it's much more sort of like it's much more of a, a feminist film than a, a basic you know America rah rah uh, movie that that it could have been if Tom Hanks had been the main character. Absolutely, and I think you know the, the film wants to tell its story through Catherine Graham, and it very much does. So I think you can kind of to a certain extent you can judge the film on that merit and i think on that merit it does succeed whether or not it succeeds in a wider aspect i think there are probably things which you know we've touched on today which maybe it doesn't fully but you know in a two-hour drama you're not going to get everything and i suppose if this had been an eight-part tv series we would have got more things out of it in in respect to maybe some of the other sides but yeah exactly i i I was reading um some of katherine graham's journals from uh, that period and and she does put more emphasis on you know the court case and her anxieties about you know whether or not this um prior injunction was going to be put forward and the future potential of being of of a libel or a criminal charge by the um by the executive branch exactly you know yeah absolutely well I think that probably wraps us up quite nicely as far as where we got to in the film. I think we've covered pretty much everything we wanted to talk about. Um, how did you feel that first podcast went, Toby? I thought it was good. I, you know, it's weird that this was a low research podcast, but I thought we had um, we, we sort of referred to a, a number of different scenes and brought up uh, some good arguments. Yeah, I think so. I think that yeah. kind of sets us up nicely for uh, when we do our next uh, episode. Yeah, I, I really can't, I wait, really for can't wait for the Buckley one. This is going to be... So, uh, just in case you're wondering what the next episode will be about, um, <laughs> um, we, we have a an interest, shall we, shall we say, in uh, as you might be able to tell from politicians and political figures of this time. So, sort of a politician and a political figure... I suppose. I mean, he was a politician to some extent, and the... yeah, he 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 had been a politician. He did run for the, I think, New York State or, or New York City mayor. Yes. So yeah. that is true. Yeah. And if you're if you're still trying to wonder who who uh, who we are, of course, talking about, then uh, we are talking about Buckley. Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> So God, William I, I, F- oh, I, oh my God. Yeah, will William F. William F. Buckley. That is William uh, F. Buckley. Uh, Built, built to his friends, William. <laughs> the character which 
I, I think we could explore in a lot of detail and we can talk any number of different ways about him, both from his clashes with Gore Vidal to his idea of this sort of intelligent Republican, which is um, maybe not caught on in the 21st century, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting in many, in many ways. Um, I would say that Nixon, through not wanting um, to um, have the press as the, the way he would transfer information to the public to trying to by basically trying to bypass the press nixon set out the public relations framework for modern conservatism but buckley buckley um was the intellectual i think father of modern conservatism absolutely was and um yeah that is going to be a very interesting next podcast hopefully it won't take us too long to record that but knowing toby and myself we will probably want to do a bit more reading just because we find the topic so fascinating so hopefully between hopefully before um trump gets uh, re-elected we'll have a podcast uh, <laughs> podcast out on that one um at least before trump wins the uh, house and senate back in november yeah that that would be a very positive step before trump's uh, what, third or fourth term as president i'm not sure how many he's decided wow. he wants but um i'm just wondering whether or not he's going to beat fdr <laughs> <laughs> well we'll see how many uh, how many wars we have to go through first to get uh, ah, yeah, to get through sure, trump sure. uh okay well and yeah i think with bolton we might get korea, korea. <laughs> i'm i'm still <laughs> unsure about iran, iran because, because i think, I think the, the national security, national security state, state is is a, is a little, a little bit, bit unsure about that about but that. i don't know bolton yeah. might whisper in his ear and you never know iraq and uh, yep well one thing we can guarantee is before the mexico american war we will have our next podcast out (laughs) (laughs) perfect thank you toby for uh, joining me today and uh, for for being the the co-creator and co-host of this fabulous beast which is impressions of america um you can follow us follow us on twitter at usa impressions and uh yeah please get in contact if you have any questions any abuse we're not like richard nixon we can take abuse so uh don't don't feel you need to uh sugarcoat anything thank you very much for listening to the debut podcast and uh we hope to be back again soon thank you cheers, cheers.